Well, you know, I'm very anxious about, you know, global warming. What do you want from me? Piss off. Here we go. Today is Sunday, September 20th, 2015, and this is episode 131 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hey, Jerry. How are you, sir? Doing great. How are you? Good. I know you have been crazy busy lately, so we have not been as uh, active on the podcast front. Yeah, and that's so, uh... it's not going to get better anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you're you're burning definitely the candle at both ends right now. You're jet setting all over the place, and then heading to DerbyCon and craziness going on. That's right. So speaking of DerbyCon, mm-hmm. we uh, we're we're going to be there. I guess probably late Thursday, so we probably won't be able to partake in any fun on Thursday. However, we'll be there for Friday, and I've already had people asking, "What are we? Are we going to have any listener shenanigans?" Oh, and. Well, uh, I think we should. Uh, absolutely. And and have we decided what those shenanigans are going to be? Um, well, I, I, clearly the obvious easy answer is to have a get-together in the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I have this feeling that we may max out the capacity of the bar. Aren't you just getting a little high on your horse? Well, no, I just... There's not a lot of capacity in the bar, I guess is my <laughs> point. <laughs> You're saying since last year we picked up a few listeners who might be at DerbyCon? Um, maybe three times many. As wow. Many, as much. Wow. Yeah. How many of those are just waiting for our inevitable flame out? Um, probably 90%. But, you know, until then. Until then, yeah. So Speaking, uh, speaking of flame outs, uh, maybe. We don't know any of the details yet, but... Uh, not to get into drama or gossip, but Chris Roberts of Plain Hacking fame apparently was fired by his company last week, and that's kind of all we know at the moment. That's that's right. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if at some point he kind of does a you know a tell-all. I, I would be interested. I mean, I don't know the man. I just have been very critical of some of his style and have called BS on some of his reported research as somewhat knowledgeable in the aviation field, um, but don't know anything else, really. Um, yeah. So, that's, so that's, I, I think that's the thing that concerns me is we don't, we don't really understand what's going on, mm-hmm. what his, what his perspective and take on it is. So uh, anyway. Well, next up he'll be building clocks that, you know, Oh, jeez. <laughs> yes. Or taking them apart and putting them into other cases. Yes. Yeah. As, so, as were. I don't know if it's FUD or not, but there appears to be some more coming out in that story that this might, just might, and I don't know if I know this one, this might have been intentional media grab. I don't know. Oh, really? So, yeah. I, I'm afraid to say much more because I need to do some verification work, but I, I'm... When this story first 
came out about Ahmed, I was appalled and frustrated and annoyed and, and, uh, you know, I was attacking the zero tolerance side of it. I wasn't even looking at any of the racial or cultural side of it, but there may be more to this story that's starting to leak out that, I don't know, may may change perception a little bit. We'll see. I don't want to say anything until it's fully verified. You know how rumors start on the internet, but there may be, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Yeah. Well, the the one, one thing I, I have read, which I think makes a lot of sense and seems pretty pretty solid is that um, it appears to be a clock that he disassembled and actually someone found the actual model number it was a clock it was a radio shack clock from 1986 i believe and uh you know they did a pretty pretty thorough job of linking the two and it, it all appearances are that he took the clock apart and stuck it in he stuck the guts into this um separate case and then took that to school the the concern yeah. i have you know you know zero tolerance and racial stuff aside i mean certainly that's a non-trivial issue is the the impact it has regardless of the facts of the situation right the impact it has on uh young people and and the the whole maker uh movement i guess is for lack of a better term and, you know, and, and, and that's the concern that I have is now it's, you know, that kind of thing is, is bad. It's going to get you in trouble. Go back, 100% agree. Go back to your video game. Yeah, th- this is not the message we want to be sending, which is what I think caused the initial backlash against the school and the police for their, their actions, uh, which I, I participated in that backlash. I thought this was incredibly inappropriate of them to have done this and is sending the wrong message. However, if there is more to the story, I may have to amend my reaction. We'll see. Yeah, it's, I mean, regardless, I think it's still inappropriate, the reaction. Yeah. You know, so anyway, let's... Um, well, I know, I completely derailed our, our... You know, before we go any further, we should have said this first. The opinions stated by Jerry and I and any animals... Falcons, dogs, cats are ours and do not represent those of our employers, past, present, or future. Yeah, and I, I would like to, I would just like to indicate that that statement is actually retroactive to the beginning of this show. I would like to say it's retroactive to the beginning of all of our podcasts. And in fact, anything I've ever said ever that could have ever inf- in, inflamed anyone's uh, passions or upset them in any possible way, uh, I, I indemnify all employers. You know what we need to do? Is is set up an LLC where the thoughts and opinions do not represent our thoughts and opinions. They actually are the thoughts and opinions of this LLC. So that if anything bad happens, you know the LLC is you know just a sacrificial lamb. What do you think? I think it's a fine idea. It's kind of like when you go in business, and and that business goes bankrupt, but you don't personally go bankrupt. Just the business goes bankrupt. Well, exactly. It's so. brilliant. See so. innovation right here, people. And we can just argue, hey, we're just you know, we're just doing what our employer tells us to do. <laughs> we're just representing that, that, the uh, views of our employer to the best of our abilities. Man. All right, so we we need to we need to pull up we need to pull up <laughs> All of this is gonna get cut from the show, isn't it? This is all just wasted time. We're we're gonna we're gonna we need to pull up and get into some stories. So Well we just haven't talked much lately because you've been so busy. So. I know, I know. We're catching up. Okay, so yes, stories why we're here. For, 
First story we have tonight comes from the business, uh, it's the Atlanta Business Chronicle. So um, the title is Atlanta's BitPay got hacked for $1.8 million in Bitcoin. It didn't actually get hacked, right? Is hacked, yeah, I was going to ask, is hacked the right term? No, they didn't get, well, maybe. So There was a, there was a, a hack portion of this. Yes, yes. So... Um, so it, actually, the interesting story is not necessarily, at least from the perspective of the Atlanta Business Chronicle, the, in, the purpose of the story is not the reported hack, right? It's actually that BitPay is suing their cyber insurance provider to recoup $950,000 uh, because their insurer refused to pay. So, so what, what happened? So what happened here is that some uh, some apparently unknown attacker, uh, I, I, as far as I can tell, compromised the email account or otherwise spoofed the email account of a, a, a cryptocurrency reporter, sent an email to the CFO of BitPay, who's a gentleman named Brian Crone, and you know basically said, hey, uh, you know, looking to do a story about this. Can you take a look at this document or, you know, go to this site? It's not very clear to me exactly the mechanism, but anyway, uh, this attacker fished Mr. Crone's credentials and ended up with the uh, access to his email account. So really a multi-level spearfish. Yes. So first went after a known credible individual. And then went after the CFO from that credible individual's account. Correct. Okay. As best I can tell, that's that's the way it went down. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, the next thing that happened was apparently the uh, the attacker spent some time uh, trolling through Mr. Crone's email, figuring out how they do business, and I apparently learned that it was accepted practice for the CFO to give instructions to the CEO to transfer bitcoins to. Uh, customers, right? So, uh, so what happened was uh, the attacker acting with the email account of Mr. Crone sent an email to the CEO saying, uh, "Transfer a thousand bitcoins to this customer's account," and the transfer happened. And then uh, a little bit later, send a thousand bitcoins to this other person's account. Okay, done. Then on the third time, send three thousand bitcoins to this account. And here's where it kind of went off the rails for the attacker a little bit. Uh, the CEO this time responded back to the CFO saying, okay, the Bitcoins are transferred and copied the purported customer who was supposed to be receiving the Bitcoins. And the customer replied back saying, I didn't buy 3000 Bitcoins. Nor did I receive them. And nor did I receive them. And so, uh, <laughs> um, you know, so, so, it was pretty clear at that point that they had been had and you know lost five thousand bitcoins. Now, for those who may not be intimately aware of 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 Bitcoin protocols, the wallets are unique and anonymous. Right. So it's not like there was an account that was labeled with Joe Bob's budget bait and internet dial-in shop that they were dropping into. It was a you know basically a you know, an identifier for a wallet that there's no real way to trace back to an individual. 
So it's not, uh, it's, it wasn't a failure uh, to identify the customer's wallet because there really is no way to identify the customer's wallet. Yeah, exactly right. So they're they're going to have a heck of a time if if at all possible. They're they're not going to get the, that money back. So they had this cyber insurance policy, uh, and you know they claimed they filed a claim, and the, and the insurance company declined the claim, and so now BitPay has filed a lawsuit. And actually, it's very interesting. And for anybody who's very, who's interested. Uh, it, it, I thought this is pretty cool. Um, exhibit A is actually the contract of their insurance policy, so you actually get to see real live example of a cyber insurance policy. That's interesting. So, if they lost one point eight million, why are they only trying to recover nine hundred fifty thousand from the insurance company? Because they had a million dollars in coverage with a fifty thousand dollar deductible. So they're actually wow. filing the lawsuits for $950,000. And was there a specific reason why the insurer said, no, piss off, we're not giving you money? That is not clear. I did read, uh, I read a fair amount of the 48-page uh, cyber insurance agreement. And I will tell you, there are a number of clauses which seem very contradictory. And one of the things I wanted to mention here is Here's a great opportunity to kind of learn about some of the pitfalls, right? So there, um, I'm just going to, uh, I'm not going to go through it in in deep t- in detail, but there's a, you know, a section A of this agreement basically says here's the here's the scenarios that we'll cover, and then there's a bunch of you know here's where we will not cover, and one of them is one of the the scenarios that they'll cover is if you lose money as the result of a fraudulently initiated transfer of money. And then later in the exclusions, it says that they will they will not cover a case where a computer is used to fraudulently transfer uh, or initiate the transfer of money. So um, I, I think... As, as opposed to a paper slip, as opposed to... <laughs> there, I mean, great question. And... Um, uh, you know, Q-form tablets... Uh, I, I, I'm trying to understand another way in modern business that anything would be initiated. Um, I don't know. I mean, check, right? So, check fraud. I guess, but it, was that check cut by a computer? I, <laughs> I don't know. I, point point is, I I really think that this is a you know this is an example. Of uh, you know a, a cyber insurance policy gone wrong, and um, you know it's an opportunity oh, or, to learn or, or right if you're the insurer. Well, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely, and and so I, I guess my point is, think about the ways in which people are losing money right now, and make sure. And I would say your your lawyer is going to have to help you out with this, right? Make sure that the contract does not exclude the way people are losing money. Yeah, seriously. And, and this is one that, that we've kind of had a pet fascination with is it is so complex and so difficult to really truly understand the risks involved with cyber insurance that it's really tough to fully identify and trust 
that you're going to be able to get to get a uh, a payout. You know, if you've got fire insurance, that's pretty straightforward and pretty well understood. Uh, and aside from a case of arson or some sort of massive neglect, probably going to get a payout. But here in cyber insurance, I wonder if we're wasting our money. How often are these really getting paid out, and how often are these truly working for companies? Uh, it's a great question because I suspect. A lot of times, there's probably confidentiality sections that that um, preclude such disclosures, and so I, I, you know, except where it's it's um, it's required by regulation, I would imagine a lot of these things are kind of handled privately. And I I wonder at that point if it makes sense to start wargaming and red teaming with your insurance company and go, okay, if this happens, would you pay out? Okay, if this uh, yeah. happens, would you pay out? Yeah. Okay, what is it about our business practice in this situation that you wouldn't pay out? Right. And, and seeing if you need to start modifying business practice, which inevitably will then lead to an industry of consultants uh, who are working for the cyber insurance companies, uh, judging your business practice, et cetera, et cetera. But That's right. I, I don't know how else companies are going to start to be able to depend on these sort of cyber insurance policies if they don't have some more robust guarantee up front. I don't know. It seems fraught with peril. It it, it definitely does. I mean, I th- honestly, I think it comes down to having, a, a lot of it comes down to having a good lawyer who understands the kinds of risks that you need to cover. But again, you know, the, we, we may be having entirely different discussions about, you know, new emergent tactics in two or three years and the things, you know, things that are are happening that we didn't conceive of or, you know, wouldn't have thought were going to be a problem today. And and so, you know, the, the contract that you have with your agreement or with your insurance provider may not, you know, cover that. And so that kind of says that you, you need to have, to me at least, it may be the wargaming thing that you just described is the way to do that, right? At the very least, doing it with your, your, your own, Lawyer, your legal counsel. <laughs> but what stops the insurance company, even after you've orientated, at the time of actually submitting, uh, you know, the request for payment? Them going, nah, something changed. Well, I, I mean, honestly, that's what the courts are for. <laughs> um, yeah, good point. You know, as we're as we're seeing here, and so it'll be kind of interesting to see how that how that plays out. So, anyhow, food for thought. Uh, next story, and there's, there's really two stories, or two different articles regarding the same story. There was an insurance provider called Excellus Blue Cross Blue Shield in, um, I think it's in New York or New Jersey, New York, uh, who was hacked. But the, here's the interesting thing. Uh, in the wake of Primera and Care First and Anthem and blah, 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 uh, they hired Mandiant to, uh, this is the official story, right? So I assume it's what actually happened in, in response to those uh, other hacking incidents, they hired Mandiant to come in and do a proactive investigation. And um, Mandiant found that there was indeed hackers in their systems, uh, stealing their datas for, I think a year and a half. And, uh, and, and so they are announcing, I, I believe, a breach of roughly 10 million, the, the personal health information of roughly 10 million people. Uh, what's what's interesting here, 
is number one, you know, it was kind of self found. Number two, the data was encrypted. Ooh, right. Uh, so, you mean the data at rest in the organization was encrypted by the organization, not that the bad guys had encrypted something? Correct. The the. Mm. You know, but Jerry, encryption solves everything. I know, it does doesn't it? So, at, we, and you know, my ADD brain. I really think. Remember, at like the Jerry's Kids Marathon, where they do a like a call in pledge drive, and every so often they would update the total pledges. I think we need one of those for the, the show. The tote board. <laughs> the tote board for for number of records compromised of of stories we cover. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's well, go to the tote board. Well, yeah, the update. We'll, we'll have to we'll have to get a lackey to to uh, man the tote board. So, so, uh, so anyhow, yeah, um, you know, the big, in, in, in my view, one of the big stories here is that the data was apparently encrypted. So unlike, you know, when we threw rocks at uh, Anthem and we threw rocks at Pre- uh, Primera because, oh my God, they didn't, encri- they didn't encrypt the data. How horrible is that? Well, they did encrypt the data at Excellus. However, um, I'm going to guess that based on the the way in which this breach happened, they probably ended up with uh, credentials that allowed them to decrypt the data without much of a problem. Or or maybe the this keys were store, stored in the same directory. Who knows, right? Yeah, this is the problem with the just encrypted, you'll be fine crowd, is that it doesn't really take into account the way that people are breaching data. And if I've got valid creds, uh, that application is going to happily decrypt me, decrypt it for me and hand me the data. So that's only part of the problem here, guys. Yeah. Now, you know, it's, truth be told, there's not any detail behind when they say that data was encrypted. I don't know if that means that they were using like Vormetric, you know, field level encryption or if that means that they installed PGP whole disk encryption on the server. I, I, you know, I don't really know where in the spectrum they're they're at, but you know, r- regardless, depending on the method of or the mode of failure, encryption may not serve you <laughs> at all. Not that it's not important, right? I'm not saying that we. No, it. You just have to understand what problem it's solving for you and properly understand the threat landscape and what it is it's doing for you and not have a false sense of security by using it. Right, right. And understand, in the, to carry on your thought, right, understand given the way in which you've, you, you've tried to mitigate that risk with encryption, understand the, you know, the, the latent methods of failure, the remaining methods of failure, and then do something about those uh, and if, if, you're, yeah. if you're really serious about it. So... Now, one thing I'll be clear is is we don't want to get into that whole argument of, well, if you can't secure against anything, you should do nothing. Not saying that. Every bit of additional difficulty you present to an attacker is a good thing as long as it you know makes sense for your organization. We're not saying don't use encryption because it doesn't solve all the problems. We're saying understand what problems it solves and continue to work on the other problems that it doesn't solve. Yes, that's right. That's right, or or the new problems that it creates. So the other the other thing that this points out to me, which I think is, you know, potentially even bigger, is they were hacked and they had no idea, right? And they were hacked for eighteen months. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if they had not taken the step of hiring Mandiant, 
they may never have learned. So what caused them to hire Mandiant? Well, they hired Mandiant because there had been a rash of healthcare providers being hacked. So do you think they had any hint that something might be wrong at all? Well, that's the, see, that's the key. I mean, we, we don't know if, you know, the FBI called up and said, hey, you might want to go talk to Mandiant, and, you know, and then they can say, hey, look at us, we were proactive, or if they actually were proactive and, you know, we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, be diligent. Don't really know. I mean, I, I, the, the, the official story is that they hired them proactively, they hired Mandiant proactively to come in and do an assessment. We don't know any more than that. Um, you know, so on the one hand, that's very good. It's good that they did that. And I, I think, you know, kudos to them for taking a look at kind of the macro trends in the industry and, and reacting appropriately. But on the other hand, it kind of points out, I think, a big problem that we have this really major blind spot to these, quote, advanced attackers who, you know, if they're not encrypting your data, you know, for, for uh, you know, uh, ransom or, you know, some other <laughs> wiping your, your PCs, if you're not sophisticated, you may never see them. You may never notice. And, you, you know, th- this is not a, 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 you know, a credit card processing company or, or a retailer, right? So there's no banks, you know, doing the common point of purchase, um, you know, risk assessment to figure out, Cor- oh, yeah, it was... Uh, correlation market. Yeah, right, right. Correlation. Yeah. To figure out, oh, yeah, it was uh, it was Excellus that was the... No, that that's not happening. So, you know... Who knows if they would ever have found out? And that kind of says to me, well, how common is this? I mean, if any given company were to hire Mandiant and say, hey, go figure out if something bad's going on, you know, is how, how common is that? Well, and it's sort of in many its best interest to make sure they do find something. Well, not I, I, I'm not. I, I agree. Not I agree. Reinforce that conspiracy theory. Yeah, well, now that they're FireEye, we can, you know, we can, uh, we can make fun of them a little bit. So, well, yeah, because they're suing researchers, so that makes me sad. <laughs> but uh, this is interesting, and it goes to say once again that we suck at detection of compromise as an industry, and I think we're still a majority of folks are still sort of in the prevention mindset and not the detection mindset. That's right. And and that our tools for detection are not as robust as they need to be. Absolutely right. So anyhow, uh, it's an interesting interesting story for a couple of different reasons, which we outlined. Hopefully, uh, you know, take a, give them a read and, and consider what, what you can learn from that. So uh, the next story we have comes from federalnewsradio.com. And one of our one of our listeners actually asked us to talk about this one. And the, the title is U.S. Search Do's and Don'ts for After the Cyber Hack. Because there's other kinds of hacks, I guess. I mean, like the jungle hack, I suppose. Well, it could be a double cyber hack. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. You know, we almost, almost had buried the word cyber. I don't know why and how it came back, but it was almost gone. And then, like, five years ago... I'm <sighs> back. Like a zombie. So, uh, so here's the deal, right? This is uh, this is some guidance from U.S. CERT to go- U.S. government agencies. Who is on the cutting edge of information security news? Well, they, they are. That's right. 
So, um, so anyway, uh, U.S. CERT is issuing some guidance to their constituent organizations, which are U.S. government agencies, on how to respond in the event that they get hacked. And I think the the impetus for that is that you know they're the agencies are seeing things get hacked and they run around with their hand fire. Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, let's uh, turn the systems off and change passwords and whatnot. And, uh, and, and us sort is saying, well, when you do that, we lose a ton of intelligence on what's going on and what they had access to and who it was and blah, blah, how they got in and, and on and on. And so the, the specific, one of the specific points that we were asked to talk about is, and I know we've talked about this in the past, the the philosophical argument of, as uh, as U.S. CERT is, you know, kind of permeates the document here, encouraging kind of a, a wait and see, you know, report it, let's get the right people in, make sure that we're gathering the right information, build a response plan, and then react. Versus... The you know the other on the other end of the spectrum it's okay we've seen something bad you know let's cut it off right now reduce our losses reduce the imp- potential impact to those people who are involved and and on and on because it seems intuitive that if there's a hack going on and people are actively stealing your data you want to stop that as soon as possible and I think that it's important to understand that. In, in most cases, when these thing when these kinds of breaches are discovered, they've been going on for a long, long, long time, and so you're not, you know, you, you're not um, you're not catching them in general, right as you know they're breaking the window, you know, you're uh, you're 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 catching them, you know, the fifteenth time through the through the broken glass trying to, you know, carry stuff out. So you have no idea what, you know, what they've, what they've gotten so far or how, how long they've been in there. And the uh, point is that if you, you know, if you, if you take a, a very reactionary, you know, let's cut them off right now, you, you don't know necessarily who they are, how they got there, um, what kind of tools did they use, what kind of data were they after, uh, where where in the network have they been? Uh, whereas, if you take the other the other perspective that's being prescribed here by U.S. CERT, uh, you are monitoring them. You you're looking to see what systems are they interacting with, what kinds of command and control infrastructure are they using, what kind of malware are they using, uh, and trying to figure out okay what kind of data that they have access to, and then you build a plan. And and uh, you know I, this by the way in in the in the industry is called eviction right so you build an eviction plan and and the whole idea is that you you know you you do a lot of intelligence a lot of research to figure out where they're at and then you develop a plan to kind of holistically in one fell swoop kick them out that and, and that's an important thing because if you take the other way and you take the other approach and you don't get something and then you turn your environment back on uh, there's very likely something still in there that allows the attacker you know, some method of persistence, and so that's what they're, you know, that's what they're after, right? Is is trying to take that holistic approach. Their concern is that you know, 
it's way too late to worry about uh, protecting the data because the data is already gone almost certainly. So now we're just trying to we're just trying to be comprehensive. There's so many assumptions, though. Oh, I agree. I I don't even know where to start on this one. Uh, so the first thing I would say is you really have to decide in your own organization if this makes sense. And the things that go into that decision are what's your likely mode of detection? If you detect them by suddenly you're noticing a, a 20 gig file egressing out your internet pipes, uh, you may have a different reaction than you picked up an anomaly in login behavior at two in the morning. Uh, you know, the next thing I'd say is, do you have the facilities, capabilities, knowledge, tools, and people to actually prosecute a forensic investigation live? Yeah. Because if you don't, none of this matters. You know, this goes back to the same attribution problem. Why do you care at the end of the day if there's nothing you can do about it? Right. Right. So, uh, you know, and I go back to something I hinted at it before, which is that you probably should have this figured out before something happens. Um, so I, I agree with the concept is if you want to do reconnaissance and, and information gathering on about your bad guy, you don't want to alert them and you do want to maintain as much evidence as possible, which means don't turn off servers, don't reboot anything, don't affect logs, be as quiet as you can, don't alert. I get all that, but there's, there's a presumption here that you have the skill set, the capability and the ability to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and the flip side is you're willing to sustain a further loss while you're doing that. And that the benefit of investigating outweighs that further loss. Yeah. Now, I do think it's important to understand the context that this was sent in, right? So it's U.S. CERT is the origination, is the originator, and the government agencies are the recipients. And so they, the context is that, think about this, right? The incident response team of a company has sent an email to the business units of the company saying, here's how we want to handle incident response. That's what we're seeing here. And we need to we need to keep that in mind. They're not this I don't think this is was intended to say that, you know, the, the average company should follow this you know, this playbook. I think it's, you know, as the US government, here's how we want to respond right. to um And to, it may make breaches. sense, right? You know, if they've got the capabilities, but it's just a matter of extrapolating it into the private sector that is. Yeah, absolutely, but I I do think that that for private sector, it's, you know, we should, especially the more mature organizations, should take a look at this and see, okay, you know, here's here's how one large organization, the U.S. government, is is handling this. And, you know, is, is there an opportunity to model a program after this? You know, so things like making sure that your employees don't, you know, investigators or, or first responders, however you want to call them, right, are, are not, you know, submitting malware samples to VirusTotal and clicking on the links right. uh, found in, you know, and, and doing DNS queries. And, you know, you don't, you don't want to do necessarily password resets. And well, you're basically writing an incident response handbook. Exactly. Yeah, which is always a good thing. Uh, the only thing I would say is just understand what the intentions, goals, and purpose of this particular approach is and make sure it fits in your organization before you 
you know, say, hey, we're just going to do what you assert us to do. Well, there's a lot of assumptions behind this proposal. But I love the concept of having thought out and have a plan and educating your folks on the plan so that you maximize your chance of achieving whatever goal it is you're trying to, to achieve. Yeah, now I, I do think that back to the point uh, under which this was, was raised or asked of us, you know, there, it is entirely possible, as you pointed out, right? You know, you will see the big data, you know, a big bunch of data being exfiltrated. And you know, if you followed this guidance to the letter, you would, you know, you would, uh, you know, call up US Cert. And by the time that happened, the file transfer would be over and the data is gone, right? And so um, it, it may make sense for there to be some, you know, some extra triage kind of a step. I don't know. This is obviously, I'm assuming they've thought that that through, and this is how they've chosen to, uh, you know, to, to respond. Uh, but that is a, I mean, that is a, that that's the trade-off. And I, I'm not, I don't have Maybe a... Maybe you have multiple plans you invoke based on the circumstance of what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that might be a really sophisticated sort of methodology, but, you know, you might have different response points depending on what evidence you've got in front of you. Yep. In general, you don't want to make knee-jerk decisions in the heat of the moment. You want to either have that decision pre-made or you want to take time to think through the decision is, is I think, yep. the key. That's right. All right, so moving on to our next story, and this one comes from The Guardian, and the title is Newest Cyber Threat Will Be Data Manipulation, U.S. Intelligence Chief Says. Uh, and yeah, yeah. So, so this was um, uh, Clapper and Rogers testifying before Congress, basically saying that you know the new next horizon of cyber attacks, and by the way, they actually used the term cyber Armageddon in here, um, uh, is going to not be just stealing data. It's actually going to be altering data. And and so I, I have to wonder, by the way, if if this thought process resulted in the wake of the OPM breach, or you know, have they been thinking about this for a long time? I think it's the news here is that they're now standing up in front of Congress talking about this. Uh, but I recall after OPM, one of the things that was talked about by a lot of reporters and industry people was, holy cow, if these, you know, whoever this was that, that got into the OPM database had, instead of just simply copying the data, what if they had inserted people, right? What if they had, you know, did they have the ability to create uh, new employees and, and kind of insert um, you know, just simplistically, right, moles into uh, the the government through its HR system. Uh, you know, I, who knows from a process perspective if that would have ever worked, but that's the, I think that's the point here is that the next frontier is not simply intelligence gathering like whoever, uh, you know, I'm not going to say China, right? But whoever is stealing all this data, it, you know, they they may very well move on to um, changing data, and so we need to we need to, to think about that. Well, it makes sense. It, it, depending on what your goals are, I mean, Stuxnet was all about that. That's right. 
So uh, certainly it's a viable approach for certain circumstances and certain adversaries, depending on what they're up to. Yep. I, I can't necessarily quibble. No, and, you know, I think um, it's it, it's uh, it seems like a logical evolution of, of the tactics. So um, I, I, I do wonder how it will manifest itself, if it will manifest itself, I assume it will, in the non-public space and, you know, in, in private businesses. Uh, you know, to an extent, we we already have seen that with CryptoLocker and, you know, the the wiper type malware. But what we've not really seen a lot of is, you know, changing, messing up financial statements. I mean, think about think about a piece of malware that gets into your SAP or your Oracle financials or, or you know, insert ERP system here and starts mucking with transactions very subtly and skewing your, you know, your, your uh, 10 Qs. <laughs> And, you know, and, and causing you, Pam, you, conceivably, you could create a lot of problems for an organization. Yeah, absolutely. And that, of course, indicates that you're going to have to have more controls and sanity checks and those things, and which causes more time, money, and effort being spent. That's right. That's right. All right. We didn't have this problem, by the way, when we were using punch cards. Well, we did have hanging chads. Well, good point, good point. You know, and that apparently causes some issues. Only in presidential races. Our young listeners will probably have to look that one up. (laughs) Yes. Man, that's sad. All right. Uh, The last story we have tonight is uh, is a bit of a different beast than what we normally talk about. And it comes from CSO Online, and the title is, As Containers Take Off, So Do Security Concerns. So you may have noticed that uh, Docker and things like Docker are all the rage in uh, in the IT world. Do you want to give us a little kind of uh, quick tutorial on what these are? Yeah, yeah. So, so Docker is you know is, is this um, kind of emergent technology uh, that it falls under the banner of of containers, and the whole idea is that uh, as applications get more and more complex and have more and more dependencies and custom configurations and whatnot, it becomes more difficult and time-consuming and less valuable uh, to spend configuring those things, right? So the value in IT is not in configuring and setting up these applications. It's in the value, you know, it's in the, the, the functionality that it delivers. And so the whole idea here is that you you end up with this um, it's kind of like a virtual machine, but it actually runs uh, on a live operating system. So you uh, you can take many different container images and load them onto the same logical system, and uh, they're, to an extent, isolated from one another. It is definitely not virtualiz- virtualization. And th- the reason that I want to bring this up is... I see, just from where I sit, watching from the sidelines, a lot of excitement around this containerization technology, and I and I certainly understand why. However, um, I think if, if you, based on my experience, right, if, if you kind of 
um, draw a trend line out, I'm going to guess that in three or four years, we're going to have a lot of problems because people are really badly implementing these containers and they're making assumptions about the kinds of security capability that they have. I mean, these are not virtual machines. They are not fully isolated from one another. They're not intended to be uh, fully a security barrier, right? And so if you are setting up kind of multi-tenant environments on a container-by-container basis, you know, if you have three or four containers uh, or, or hundreds of containers on one system and they each are for different customers and, and whatnot, you know, th- th- that's probably not a great a great model because it doesn't doesn't provide a lot of separation between them and there's just a uh, the, the the reason i want to bring this up is i i really think as with most new technologies we really have to think you know kind of pretty hard about you know, what are the what are the risks associated with this thing how do we have to change our operations to encompass this new technology. And so, for instance... That's just negative talk, Jerry. We're here to find solutions to enable our synergies to increase your older value. I don't have time for you to come to me with all your problems. You're a <laughs> negative thinker, and you're not a team player. And I may be joking, but you god-awful know that that is exactly what happens. Maybe not verbally, but in organizations. No, it, it, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. I mean, there's no no question about it. And and so um, one of the one of the big benefits of containerization is that it is simple, right? And and so I would encourage you to think about other ways of continuing to get that benefit, but with more security. And so an example might be running, and I talk a little about this in the article. You know, one container per virtual machine, and Again, the whole point of containerization is that you it extract it it uh, abstracts a lot of the configuration overhead of a particular environment away from you. It's already pre-configured, and and so if you put that which in, just to jump in, it may be an opportunity to pre-configure pre-configure slightly more securely. Uh, great point. That's a great point. However, at the same time. You know, an astute reader or astute listener might think, well, if these things are pre-configured and they're really complex and the whole point of this is to remove that complexity so people don't have to worry about it, how do they get updated? And I'll tell you, I don't think there's a great answer for that. So um, th- those are there's a lot of, and that depends, by the way, based on the provider of your container. So some there are some container providers like Red Hat who will do a good job of, of keeping them updated, but then there's others that don't. I mean the whole point of this is that they're you know they're they're taking a lot of complicated you know configuration work off your hands. By the way, I was recently playing with um with the forensics workstation forensics tool called GRR and holy crap that thing is hard to set up. I you know I I've been a Linux and Unix admin for a long time and I think the dependency tree on that is worse than anything I have ever run into but they have a docker container and I got to wonder you know 
given the complexity and the sheer number of dependencies in that thing, are is somebody really going to keep that Docker image up to date? And do I have to you know know to download a new Docker container every time there's an update that gets pushed out? And by the way, I lose all of the customizations that I made. What a pain in the rear end! So, you know, I I just encourage everyone, not only with Docker and containers, just you know, as these technologies emerge, think about what that means, and and, and work with your IT departments, figure out how. You know where are the, you know, where are the rough spots? Where are you likely to run into problems? You know, in the short term and kind of over the long term. This this is a great, in my view, this is a great case that has some obvious um, warts that that are easy well, to identify. And it certainly throws vulnerability management for a loop, patching, and because now suddenly things that weren't before a quote unquote appliance that were quote unquote the vendor's problem to patch. Uh, are yes so you know i run a scan with a vulnerability scanner says wow you're 18 versions back on this lib cap or whatnot whatever it's a it's a container i can't patch that ah yes uh, exactly uh let me get back to you right i mean right assuming assuming that your your vms tools even work in there that's true well you know if this becomes popular maybe they'll adapt to it but yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's great for dev environment, but not production. I don't know. And, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of uses in development. But I think as we are, you know, as as the model tends to go, right, where it'll be used in dev for a while, and then people will start embracing it for production. And somebody's going to get the great idea that hey, it's a container. A container is just like uh, you know, like a, a hypervisor. And so let's just throw all our crap out there, you know, and before you know it, you're going to get, somebody's going to get compromised in a really bad way. And they're going to say, what the heck happened? How did this happen? And, um, and yeah, we can laugh. But, you know, interesting food for thought. That's right. We can, we can watch and say, look, containers will be the doom of us all. And then a year or two from now when they are, we can say, we told you so, and then that's it because that's all the good we did. Well, I mean, but we'll be on. Uh, I mean, we'll be we'll we'll look like you know amazingly uh, <laughs> you know insightful people, and we'll be on whatever, dude. Unless we're doing stunt hacking, nobody cares. Well, that's true. Anyway, so that is the store, or that is the show for tonight. So uh, Uber's not calling us to be hired. That's all I'm saying. You're bitter about that still. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not bitter i'm merely pointing out blue team is not sexy it, it is decidedly not sexy it's really hard to trumpet so how many attacks did you stop this week right you just that's right that's right um and you know i people will argue with me tooth and nail that that uh defense is sexy and i and i just have to say no it is not defense is like working for the power company. It is. It is important, though. Let us be uh, clear. It is a noble, noble pursuit, and it is very important. I could go off on a twenty-minute rant of why it matters, but it is not sexy. Yeah, being important and being sexy are not the same. 
And I'm not saying, by the way, that red team stuff is not important. It is as well. It's very important. I'm not dogging on that. I'm just saying blue team guys are not invited to get keynote talks at most cons. Uh, and, you know, I, I was I was having this discussion with some some people last week. Uh, it's, it's also important to know just just from the perspective of of my experience running this podcast i get you know i get a fair amount of email and people hitting me up on twitter and whatnot almost no one wants to be a you know quote defender everyone is everyone wants to be a pen tester how do i get you know how do i get into pen testing how do i learn how to use cali how do i you know it that's where that's where it's at better or for worse and you know i think in <clears throat> maybe in uh you know in 5 years we're going to have a glut of pen testers i don't know but uh, even from the government perspective when they talk about you know the lack of cyber skills in almost every context every time that comes up it always seems to be related to offensive um you know offensive people and i don't mean i people that swear <laughs> the hell you don't i will say and this could be a really, really, really controversial thing to say. I think it's almost easier to be a red teamer than it is to be a blue teamer. Yeah. It's a lot harder day in, day out to be right every time and to secure it and find that balance and deal with all the politics and understand all the nuance of business than a red teamer it is to just go find holes and break it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think the <clears throat> I've, I've I've talked about this in the past, I, but I think the uh, I think the job of the red teamer is much more deterministic, right? I can definitively say that in this engagement, I got into your system, and here's how I did it, and here's the fancy paper, you know, fancy uh, write up on it, and pay me my money. And on the blue team side, it's very different. It's you know, okay, well, you didn't get hacked today. Well, did you not get hacked, or did you not see that you got hacked? Um, you know, the, and how do you prove that your efforts stop the hack as right. something else random? Right. What do you do? All you did was apply a patch. You right. Know, the and vendor did that work. We need to find a way to do your job cheaper. <laughs> it's, it's true. I, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not dogging a red team, guys. I really, I, all props to the red team folks, really. Uh, they are absolutely vital, and, and I utilize them, and, and they are a key part of my work, and, uh, you know, I'm just saying they get the glory and we shovel the crap. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, um, in, in a lot of ways, I think red, red team, depending on, and by the way, just to go off on a little, little side rant on our side rant is I, I'm seeing this bifurcation at least in, in half, maybe in more than two pieces of the, you know, the, the red team penetration testing crowd there's like, um, you know, there's the the hardcore red team people who are, you know, writing exploits and, you know, they're, they're applying significant creativity to their craft as they try to penetrate uh, their target. And then on the other, on the other hand, you have... Um, Script kitties? Basically, yes. I mean, I, I hate saying it that way. But that's basically what it is, right? People who know how to use, you know, Kali and Metasploit and, you know, just the different 
tools. And it, and, and when you have that sort of an approach, it's, it's basically just a little more than a vulnerability scan. You know, it's, I mean, it is more than a vulnerability scan, but it's not, it, you know, it isn't that, um, you don't, I, I really think that when you get to the point of the, of what a penetration test is trying to get to, you want to mimic a, you know, a determined adversary trying to get into your systems. Do you? Do you need to? I would argue having folks who are good at Metasploit can prove, the, prove your position for most environments pretty well. It depends on what your goal of your pen testing and red teaming is. What are you trying to prove? Who are you trying to tr- prove it to? Right. So, so let me just... Uh, or, or are you just hitting your compliance check mark? So here's why I bring this up. So Bob... I did talk, Bob is out of Syria and I did have a chance to talk to him and he was, he was relaying a story to me that, uh, you know, his, his organization had hired a penetration testing firm to come out and test and and do a test for PCI. And they got a, basically a clean bill of health. Right. And then another, uh, organization for, reasons that Bob didn't explain, hired a much more thorough penetration testing company. And uh, that that testing company found a bunch of pretty significant vulnerabilities that the other one didn't didn't find. And you know and it, it comes down to when you looked at when he looked at the um, you know the, the the discrepancy, it was pretty clear that it came down to the the knowledge and capability of the, the the tester and so, I uh, you know I just think that this is a um, this is a difficult area, right? But okay, I I am actually hearing a couple different things here. Being the ability, having the ability to be a very quality pen tester and find and understand vulnerabilities and exploit those vulnerabilities is a skill set separate than being able to generate brand new zero days and generate new research for new vulnerabilities. So you can have somebody who doesn't do O-Day research, who is an extremely skilled pen tester, who is really exploiting, for lack of a better term, that existing research. And then you could also have pen testers who are novices, who don't know how to properly leverage vulnerabilities and do recon, that sort of thing. So you've got a whole gamut of skill sets on the pen testing side uh and i you know you might argue the ability to generate new research is a different skill set you know if we look at some of the uh car hacking stuff that's been going on by those guys um you know and suddenly their names chris 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 valisek and um thank you the other guy (laughs) Uh, charlie miller there you go charlie Charlie Miller. miller i used to work with charlie i should know this uh they are very, very, very skilled in that area, but they might not be as experienced or skilled in a general company pen test. So I think we're 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 getting specialization across the board here uh, yeah. when you start really focusing. So, so I I don't know I I think they're all different aspects of the ecosystem that all play together, and I think what what you're kind of pointing out is that some companies suck at pen testing. Uh, but it doesn't mean they have to be doing a bunch of zero-day research. Well, yeah, and I, I, in in hindsight, I think I probably mischaracterized that. So in in the in Bob's instance, it wasn't um, you know it wasn't necessarily that they were uh, identifying uh, you know, or, or you know building new exploits. 
here's the I think here's where the the major difference comes into play. Uh, if you are only testing, let's say window, you know, vanilla Windows or vanilla Linux with really nothing important or, or nothing much running on it, then in a lot of ways, the general tools will will do a pretty good job for you. But what we often see, and in, in the case that Bob was talking about, was the company had some you know, in-house developed applications. And so the, the tools that the first company used, just, you know, that they didn't, do a good job of kind of grokking, right. you know, and looking for cross-site scripting and, you know, SQL injection and things like that. Whereas, you know, in the second case, it wasn't that they were, you know, writing new exploits. It was that it was actually a person behind the keyboard, you know, thinking, th- thinking, right. Yeah. And not just throwing scripted tools at it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, rational Epscan came back and said it was clean or, you know, uh, um, white hat came back and said it was clean or, so, anyhow. No, I think that's actually a huge important point, too, which is that, you know, not, not to completely derail even further, but I think having a quality pen tester who has the ability to go far beyond just what his tools are telling him to do and know how, knows how to employ the tools properly is absolutely critical. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, you're going to pay for that. So if you're looking for the cheapest pen tester, you're probably not going to get it. Uh, right. But, I, you know, it's, it, 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 to some extent, You've got to. F- I, I think the problem is that that I'm seeing, and and here's the to net out the concern I've got is to a lot of people a pen test is a pen test is a pen test. I had a pen test on my environment, and and you know it, it didn't find anything, and and therefore I'm good. And it and there's really no qualitative assessment about you know how good that uh, that testing company is, and so I yep. don't know. You know, I don't know what that means. How how do we do? We need to uh, you know to rank pen testers. Do, do do we need to start calling them different things? I don't know, um, but I definitely think that there's a, a a wide range of skill capabilities. Um, you know, all the way up to you know kind of the hardcore exploit development, and on the other end is you know basically running. Rapid Seven and some other stuff. So anyhow, um, no, I, you know that also applies internal for internal enterprise vulnerability management. Yeah, and and how much energy and can you do it anyway? It's that's a whole other huge topic. We're we're way over on time. That's right. So uh, so anyhow, uh, if you are going to DerbyCon, I definitely look forward to uh, to meeting with you. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to meet. I. Um, Mr. Khaled and I will talk, but I think we'll probably end up trying to get together on Friday uh, sometime before the, the big party starts. And, um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a big dancer anymore. You know, back in my day, I, I could cut a rug, but you know, not these days past my prime. Right. So, um, you know, we, we, we'll probably keep it going. I'm at just going to stay on mute. Good. Good plan. Good plan. So anyhow, uh, with that. Uh, we'll uh, we'll talk again next week. The podcast you can find the links to the show notes or links to the uh, stories we talked about in the show notes on our website www.defensivesecurity.org. Uh, you can send us an email if you have any questions or comments to info at defensivesecurity.org. 
Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. That's L-E-R-G, by the way. And me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, hope to see you at DerbyCon and talk again next week. Thanks, everybody. Look forward to seeing you this week at DerbyCon. And if not, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. This sounds really good. Yeah. Maybe we should have tried this earlier. Yeah. Rather than your crap Skype. You know, you need me to help you, obviously. Yep, that's exactly it. So I present to the tomorrow. Oh, boy. Yeah. Is there any way for you to go to prison during that presentation? Is that at all possible? Probably not. Okay, just checking. <laughs> Probably not. I suppo- I mean, I suppose if I were to assault someone that... You know, the normal ways of going to prison. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm still having a minor aneurysm. I know, it's okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.